Good morning. Hope you're doing well. We are in uh, a new kind of sermon series, if you will, called The Weeping Willows. So um, let me uh, give a little bit of understanding what's going on, and then we'll, we'll pray. Um, before that, I do have a quick announcement. On your way in, you probably saw water bottles and diapers and things like that. Uh, if you're interested in giving to the victims of the flood in Colombia, um, then that's what that is. So if after church, if you can run really fast and get back here probably in 15 minutes, they'll still be breaking down, and you can, you can donate to that. We're gonna, I'm going to take some, uh, all the items that we have to them tomorrow. So, uh, and while I'm there, find out what are some of the ongoing things that we can do to make more trips down there, uh, from cleanup to drywall to all the different kinds of things that we can do as, as, as a rebuilding process, which is going to take several months. Um, we'll have more information, but hopefully I can get some of that information while I'm down there, bring it back, and we can talk about what are those things going to look like for us at Remedy. So um, if you want to uh, give to that, you can just run out and, and grab something and bring it back. However, uh, there's another way that you can give as well. And the offering at the very end of the service, um, if you want to just give, to, uh, give money instead, which can be easier, certainly, just write a check in addition to what you might give for the offering uh, or just... If you, some cash, we have some envelopes you can stick cash in and just write your name for South Carolina Flood, uh, and you can stick that in the offering at the end. Um, 100% of the money you give will go. There's no, there's no company overhead that has to keep a percentage. Literally, 100% of whatever you give will go straight to help them. So um, that'll be at the end of the service as well um, if you want to do that. So anyway, we've been reading through the Bible together. Um, and last week, we just finished the Proverbs. We talked about an excellent wife. So um, now we know what an excellent wife looks like. Um, but anyway, this, this, this particular month, we're, we're transitioning into the book of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Lamentations, just from the root word lament, where people are writing laments about things that are going on. And so um, this particular prophet, Jeremiah, also wrote Lamentations. And he has, he has some... Uh, some dark nights of the soul, and he has some down times. And so as we're looking, that's why it's called the weeping willows. As we're looking at this, we're going to see um, in this, this particular section, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Um, we're going to understand a little bit more about what's going on in Jeremiah's life and how that can apply to us. So uh, that, that's where we are. If you have a Bible, we'll be in Jeremiah 20, Jeremiah chapter 20. I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump in. I'll give you a little bit of understanding about who Jeremiah is if you're not up to date on Old Testament history. Um, likely we're not, so um, <laughs> it's kind of difficult to know everything that's going on. It's so complex. So let, let, me, let me pray, and then we'll jump in, uh, in Jer to Jeremiah 20, and I'll give us a little background before we, we jump in. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for your love and your mercy that you give us to us by giving us your word. I thank you for even uh, sections of the scripture like this that are certainly difficult, um, but can help for those that are experiencing suffering and it's those who are experiencing um, down times in their life, and we know that these are written for us, that we can have uh, a true idea of how to be comforted, and what, what are the ways that we can respond appropriately as believers in Christ. And so I pray for me as I preach this section that it would be clear, but also helpful for all of those here. Um, we thank you, God, for, for sections like this that, that are difficult for sure, but instructive to how we can live for Christ and give you glory in our lives, not just in the happy times, but even in, in some of the uh, more difficult times. Lord, I, uh, I pray for myself that you would help me speak things that are true and accurate uh, and that you'd fill me with the Spirit now. I love you, God, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to jump in at Jeremiah chapter 20. 
because um, that's kind of where we are in, in the readings for this particular week. What I'm going to do before we jump into Jeremiah 20 is just let you know who this guy is and what's going on, and we can, we can jump in. Um, so Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and that's because, not because he's continually crying, but he's just an emotional guy. He's an emotional guy. He has an emotional message as prophets in the Old Testament were, were told to go and deliver a message of repentance. So they would go to the people that were wandering away, wandering far from God. They would go to them and they would try to plead with them to come back to the Lord. Don't live this particular way. Repent of, of living that particular way. God doesn't want you to live that way and come back to him. And if you do, the Lord will bless you. The Lord will help you. The Lord will be there for you. And generally, um, as Jeremiah would, would prophesy or beg the people to come back, they didn't receive it. And this troubled him. This troubled him deeply. He wanted his fellow people to come back. And so he's known as the weeping prophet because as, as that would happen, they wouldn't turn. They wouldn't respond. Um, and it troubled his heart because he loved the people. And so even in the writes, uh, as in, I'm sorry, in the writings that he has, there's a lament. There's, there's difficulty that he expresses in the fact that he wants them to repent. And even in his own life, he feels things deeply, as, as we're going to see here. He, he's an emotional, feeling person. This doesn't make him less of a man. I think it makes him more of a man. But that's who Jeremiah is. Um, if you know anything kind of about Old Testament history, um, after, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go, who, and they get over there, and Joshua leads them into the promised land. They're there for a little while, and then they say, hey, all the other kingdoms have kings. We want to have a king. And so God's like, I'm your king. You don't need a king. Well, we want a king. And so God gives them a king. Saul doesn't last very long. He's not very good. After that, the king, probably one of the best kings, David, was there. And David was ruling the 12 tribes or the 12 kind of uh, sons, if you will, of Jacob. And then after that, uh, you had Solomon. But then after Solomon, if you read First and Second Kings, there was a breaking of this kind of united 12 kingdoms. They broke and 10 tribes went to the north, and that's Israel, and 12 tribes went to the south. And that's Judah, that southern kingdom's called Judah. And so from the rest of kind of Old Testament history, you've got two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, ten tribes and two. And then you've got good kings and bad kings, good kings and bad kings. The good kings in, in those particular times, sometimes a prophet would come and the people would live for God. But a lot of times there was bad kings and the people would go live dangerously. They would make idols. They would have bad things. And God would send them a prophet and say, stop living that way and come back. Well, these two kingdoms were, were going through times. Eventually, the northern kingdom's taken. Eventually, after that, the southern kingdom's taken. The southern kingdom um, is who we're going to be dealing with. So the southern kingdom, Judah, um, in Josiah's reign, which is significantly later, who was a good king, um, Jeremiah was a prophet that was sent to the southern kingdom um, significantly later, and probably around 600 B.C. Uh, it was whenever this happened. So uh, it was whenever Jeremiah went there. And as a prophet, Jeremiah would go... And he would declare the judgment of God on them and beg them to repent. Beg them to come back because they were so far from God. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, you can see uh, the calling that Jeremiah received as a prophet. It wasn't later on in life. It wasn't even, uh, it didn't, he didn't receive the calling as a baby. He actually received the calling to be a prophet before God even put him in his mother's womb. It says in verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you or set you aside. I appointed you as a prophet to the nation. So Jeremiah's life as a prophet, the calling to be a prophet was before even being in the womb. It was, it was even before that. And what were some of the things he had to say? 
Uh, well, in verse 6, we know that Jeremiah was troubled. He prophesied even likely as a young person. You can see uh, in 6, I said, Ah, Lord, behold, I, I don't know how to speak. I'm just only a youth, and that's mostly common. Most youth don't know how to speak. Uh, <laughs> but the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth, for to all who, to whom I send, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid, for I'm with you to deliver you. And you can see in verse 9, the Lord put his hand and he touched my mouth and he said behold I have put my words in your mouth and see to it this day over the nations and kingdoms and here's kind of the message that Jeremiah the if we're going to um, explain or try to illustrate or let us understand what would the prophecy the ministry of prophecy for Jeremiah be it would be this it says it right there in the end of verse 10 to pluck up to break down destroy and overthrow well that doesn't seem very positive but after that to build and to plant so there are words that he's going to speak to the people that are going to be very difficult. They're going to be very hard. They're not going to receive it. And those are going to be mostly the pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow. But eventually there will be times of building and planting. So Jeremiah's, Jeremiah's job as a prophet that's given to him, it's not necessarily one of the greatest. It's not one of the easiest ministries. It's not one of the, the ones you're, you want to sign up for when you're kind of looking at everybody. Like lots of success, things go great, things aren't going to be good, people don't want to listen. You're kind of wanting this one, not Jeremiah's. And so Jeremiah gets the tougher deal, and as he gets the tougher deal, and he's already an emotional guy, already filled with an emotions. That's why we have the weeping willows. That's why we find ourselves here where we are, because Jeremiah is doing the work of the Lord, and as he's doing the work of the Lord, he experiences some suffering. He, he experiences a lot of suffering. So as we're looking at this, um, we can ask ourselves, why is it like this? If you're looking at Jeremiah chapter 20, you can see, um, more than likely, they're, they're written in kind of two different ways. If you notice, verses 1 through 6 is written in a kind of a compacted column, and that's just showing that it's narrative. It's not spread out like 7 through 18. 7 through 18 showing that it's, it's since it's spread out, this is more of a, of a poetry kind of feel. So there's, there's an obvious just aesthetically as we look at the just the outside just look at it it's it's already showing us that there are two different ways to or two different sections if you will of this particular text jeremiah 21 through 6 is narrative this is what happens and then jeremiah 7 through 18 is jeremiah's prayer in, in a poetry kind of sense where he contemplates and thinks about in the midst of what's happening to him in verses 1 through 6 these are his thoughts in 7 through 18 so in verses 1 through 6 is the, in the narrative section, that's the public humiliation that Jeremiah is going to experience as a prophet from the Lord. And then verses 7 through 18, that's Jeremiah's painful prayer of lament or even complaint that he expresses while he's in the, uh, the public humiliation. So um, we can stop and we can say to ourselves, okay, why is a section of scripture like this in the Bible? Why is there a text like this in the Bible? Um, let me offer out some ideas. First is, not just our church, but many churches spread across not just 2015, but all time periods are going to be filled with people that are experiencing extreme suffering. Um, for example, in Oregon, within this week, we had someone that was shot. We had nine people that were shot because they were Christians. Are you a Christian? yes. You're, you're dead for being a Christian. So they're experiencing suffering on, for the sole purpose of the fact they're a Christian. That's, I used to not say that happens in America, but it happens in America now. It's come to us now. Um, but at the same time, 
a hour from here south, there are people experiencing suffering. It's, it's, they didn't get it, I'm a Christian, so here's a flood. But there are Christians and non-Christians alike experiencing suffering as well. So there's suffering for Christ's sake, but there's also just suffering in general. There's people all over the world that are experiencing levels of suffering, Christians as well. And so this is instructive to us because there are hurting people that are having uh, suffering happen in their life. When they experience those sufferings, at the moment, and likely in some of the hardest parts of the suffering, the, the nighttime where it, maybe it's at the pinnacle of pain, I'm at the, the worst part of my life uh, that I can think in, in regard to this present suffering. When that happens, to the best of Christians, what are some of the thoughts they think? Why is this happening, God? I can't believe you let this happen to me, God. What are you going to do about it? Things like that. So the reason why this is in here is because every Christian who's experiencing suffering will have a dark night of the soul. They'll have, it doesn't characterize their life, but there are times in extreme sufferings, and maybe even not extreme sufferings. Uh, It doesn't mean it lasts, but there are times where it's there. You can go ahead and put up the next slide. So this sermon is about that kind of dark night of the soul. And you can see it's from the potter shop to the prison stocks. Because in chapter 19, Jeremiah goes to a, a pottery shop and obeying the Lord to, to do his work, to do his will. He's going to use the pottery as, a, as an illustration. And that earns him a night in the prison stocks, a painful night in the prison stocks. And so as Jeremiah is doing what is the Lord's will, he has, as we'll see in 7 through 18, a very dark night of the soul. He's experiencing suffering in an extreme way, and we're actually going to get a chance, not just to kind of see the suffering of verses 1 through 6, but we're going to get to peel back the layers of his brain and go inside exactly what he's thinking in 7 through 18 and know what someone who follows God is actually thinking. Experience those, those words that you don't say out loud in the dark night of the soul. So that's why this text is in here, because likely Christians are going to have these in their life. It's not because they've done something wrong. It's not because they've sinned and they've brought about consequences. It's because we live in a Genesis 3 broken world or someone sinned against them and they're wondering why it's happening. So that's why this is in. So what does it tell us then? That's, that's why a text like this is in the Bible. What does it tell us about Jeremiah? As you're going to read in 7 through 18, he says some, some pretty um, raw, emotion-filled things. Why does he say stuff like this? It says this. He's human. God allows him to be human. God allows him to speak. God allows Jeremiah to speak to God like a real person who experiences real pain. And God's a big boy and he can take it. It's not going to throw God off. It's not going to hurt God that he says these things. And that's important because in those moments where you're feeling that high level of suffering, if you haven't felt it yet, I think it's good to know that men of God who love God sometimes question it doesn't, it doesn't characterize the whole of their life, but they do say things, not in a rebellious you know, way, I, I, I hate you God kind of thing, but they do say some pretty extreme things where we'll see here. Um, so it shows us that Jeremiah is a real person just like us, that spirits is real pain just like us. And you can see in verse 7, the, the controversial, one of the controversial things that he says to God, where he basically, you've given me this ministry, I thought it was going to go well, you give me the word that I think they're going to receive, and they don't receive it, you deceived me, God. 
That's what he says in verse 7. Oh, Lord, you have deceived me. I was deceived. Now, he's not deceived. We'll see that ultimately he was not deceived. But that's some pretty strong words to accuse God of. Deception. And so, this is real, though. This, this is in here for you to know real Christians feel and experience real pain. And it's not just lollipops and candy land and, and Disney World for, for Christians all the time. But what does it tell us about God? What does this text tell us about God? If we take a big picture back and say, since God wrote the Bible through man, God allowed this text to even be in the Bible. What does that tell us about God? It allows us to see in his word incorrect assumptions about God, namely that he deceives, that it's in there. It shows us that God is absolutely secure in his goodness. He is absolutely secure in his goodness to show you the hearts of men where they are in their dark night of the soul and for us to still understand he's good, Jeremiah's wrong. I can understand that he's okay with us. God is okay with us not understanding him all the time. He's okay with us saying, how come it's not easy, God? How come it's difficult? I think it shows us some pretty amazing things that it's in his word that it shows us that. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 um, and kind of get the, the idea of what's happening. And then we'll look at 7 through 18 and understand, wow, um, I can't believe Jeremiah kind of said those things. But this is what's going on. Verse 1. Um, we know that Jeremiah's a prophet and he's been given this word to go to speak. And it says um, in verse 1, Now Pashur the priest, the son of Emmer, who was the chief officer. So Pashur is a man of God. He's a priest. He represents at this particular time the religious establishment. He was actually the chief officer. He was the chief officer of the priest. The priests care for and officiate the temple. So in the Old Testament, you've got the priests and you've got the prophets. And generally, they didn't see things eye to eye. The priests kind of ran it one way, representing the religious establishment, the status quo, keep it going. The prophets were sent there by God to say, you got it all wrong. You're doing it wrong. Don't just be satisfied with the way things are. So when prophets would kind of tell people what's going on, the priests generally didn't like because it disrupted the things that were happening. So you've got an ongoing kind of relationship here between prophets and priests that weren't always great, which is when it's awesome that we know Jesus is our prophet, priest, king, because he's, he, there's, a, there's an agreement. But anyway, so Pashur the priest, um, the son of Emmer, who was the chief officer here at the time, um, heard Jeremiah, it's end of verse 1, prophesying these things. So we have to stop and say, what are these things. Jeremiah is prophesying these things. What are these things that Pashur doesn't like at all? Chapter 19 helps you see what these things are. So here are these things. From, when we talked about from the pottery shop to the prison stocks. In verse 1 and 19, God says, Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take it to the elders of the people. I want you to use this pottery as a, as a teaching tool to what's going on to Israel. So Jeremiah goes and gets it. And you can even see the severity of the message that, that Jeremiah has to deliver. If you look at um, verse 3, you shall say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. You can even see in verse 8, very severe message. And I will make this city a horror, a thing to be hissed at. Everyone 
who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of its wounds. This is the message that Jeremiah gets to deliver to the people because of their sin. So it's not, it's not a great message. It's not going to be received well. You can see in verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, well actually in 10, this is the, the teaching instruction. Take the pottery, you shall break the flask in the sight of all the men when you do that and say, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people just like that, so I will also break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. This is the, the uplifting positive message that, that Jer- Jeremiah, sarcasm obviously, gets to deliver to them. And so clearly, this isn't received very well. You can see in verse 14 that Jeremiah came um, from Topheth, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house, and he said to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I am bringing upon this city and upon all its towns the disaster that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their neck, refusing to hear my words. So you won't turn, you won't come back to the Lord, you want to continue in sin. This is the message that I have for you. So that's why he, when it says Pashur heard these things that Jeremiah was prophesying, those are the things that he heard. Now when, prof, when Pashur, who's a priest, who doesn't get along with the prophet, when he heard these things, to him it sounded like treason. That's treasonous words that you're saying against the people of Israel. How can you say that? We don't like that you're saying that. So what did he do? He ordered Jeremiah to be arrested and tortured because he doesn't like what he's saying. Now, Jeremiah's word was from the Lord. Now we can automatically see why Jeremiah's going to get a little upset. So it says in verse 2, Then Pashur beat Jeremiah, the prophet, and put him in the stocks. This word stocks, it's just in the Hebrew, it's translated for us in English stocks. But it also carries with it um, twist. Put him in the twister stocks, if you will. Um, So this is more than just him being locked up. This is putting Jeremiah for an entire night in some kind of torturous contraption that's going to twist his body in painful contortions throughout the night because of what he said. So, Jeremiah is being obedient and gives a harsh word from the Lord. They don't like the message, so they terrorize the messenger and put him in the twister stocks. That's what happens throughout the entire night. Now, um, they put him in the upper room of the Benjamin Gate, the house of the Lord. Now, in verse 3, we're going to enter into the next day. So in the next day, when Jeremiah is released, he has a word for Pashur. But you should know that 7 through 18, that particular set of verses, the poetry prayer, um, that's actually what Jeremiah prays while he's in the stocks that night, while he's in the twisting, torturous contraption stocks that night. So we're going to get to kind of see how it happens, but then we're going to zoom past or, or zoom back and go back in time and see what does he actually say in the moment of horror, in the moment of suffering, what are some things that he says and what can we learn? Uh, by the way, we should say that just verses 1 and 2 alone of Jeremiah chapter 20 absolutely destroy any kind of message of the prosperity gospel. Just absolutely destroy it, which says the rewards of faith and obedience is health and wealth. Here, Jeremiah suffers precisely because he persisted in faith and obedience and trusting God. He doesn't get health and wealth. He gets the twister stocks. So it just destroys, and by the way, the 12 disciples. um, Destroys the message of the prosperity gospel, but that's just a side note. All right, so here 
we see in verse 3, Jeremiah, the next day when Pashur released Jeremiah, because Pashur thought what he said was treasonous, but it was actually from the Lord. Jeremiah, he released him from the, the twister stocks, and Jeremiah has a word for him. It, it says, and Jeremiah said to him, now, you can just imagine, Jeremiah's words um, are going to be said probably with a little bit of inward delight. Like, I'm, I'm happy to deliver this message to Pasher. So we can automatically think, well, these are just Jeremiah's words. These are not Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah is saying them, but the Lord God is saying them through Jeremiah to Pasher. So these are God's judgments on Pasher, perhaps delivered with a little bit of delight by Jeremiah. Um, and this is what he says to, to him. The Lord does not call your name Pashur, which means fruit on every side. But now your name is Magor Misabib, which is terror on every side. Your name's changed, bud, and it's not for the good. And that's, that's just the first kind of tip of the iceberg of all the judgment that's coming to you. The Lord doesn't call you fruit on every side. He calls you terror on every side now. For thus says the Lord, so we know it's from the Lord, not from Jeremiah. Behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. Because you have done this to Jeremiah and rejected the word of the Lord, this is what happens. They shall fall by the sword of their enemies. And while you look on, he will give to all to Judah. Here it is. Into the hand of the king of Babylon. Babylon is not a good word in Israel. They hate Babylon. All the way up until this point, chapters 1 through 19, they just referred it to as the foe from the north. The foe from the north. The enemy from the north. The foe from the north. Well, here Jeremiah Let's loose on who that foe is. And for the rest of Jeremiah, like 270 more times, Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. And so we already know Babylon's going to come in and eventually take over the southern kingdom anyway, take down everything that's happened. And so Israel obviously hates Babylon. And he says, now this is what's going to happen to you, Mr. Pasher, for what you've done. Now, Masab, Mis, uh, Magor, Misabib, terror on every side. This is what's going to happen. He's going to carry you away, carry all the people away captive. So now they're going to be enslaved to Babylon and they're going to take all our money. And they're going to strike you down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city, all its gains and all its prized belongings and all the treasures of the kings of Judah to the hand of the enemies who shall plunder them and seize them and carry to Babylon. And for you personally, Pashur, here's your judgment. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house, your entire family will also go into slavery and you won't get to be buried in the precious Israel the promised land, to Babylon you shall go, and there you shall die, and there you shall be buried. You and all your friends, to you to whom you have prophesied falsely. You said I prophesied falsely, you, you prophesied falsely by putting me in. So this is a major, major judgment that's given to Pashur through Jeremiah from God. This is a huge, huge deal. And so obviously Pashur would not like this particular set of judgment that's given to him at all. So that's what Jeremiah says to him on the way out. <clears throat> um, Chris Wright, as he looks at verses 1 through 6, he says, the reason why Jeremiah gave this judgment to the people of Israel was because of sin in their life. They, they had such treacherous sin. And this is what he says regarding Israel's sin. And I would say the main problem for Israel, the main sin for Israel that he's going to point out is absolutely applicable, applicable, one of those two, to us. It might be both. Tomato, tomato. So here's what, here's what he says about Israel, and it's absolutely applicable to us. For generations up until this point now, Israel had lived in such rebellion to the Lord. They had lived under the delusion, under this rebellion, that covenant blessings from God could still be enjoyed without any kind of covenant faithfulness back to God. They thought that Yahweh, or God, was 
bound to them to keep giving them prosperity and protection since they claimed his name. No matter how they chose to live, no matter how they chose to behave in all of their social, economic, political, judicial, and even religious life, they thought that God's still going to do it. He's always going to protect us. We're the people of God. And he says, when you go on believing such lies, even after the falsehood is ruthlessly pointed out to you, nothing is left afterwards but the crash when the lies implode and the truth rushes in to expose the vacuum of your hollow religiosity. That's applicable to us today. If we think at all that covenant blessings can be enjoyed without covenant faithfulness, we're under a delusion. Covenant faithfulness, in other words, really adhering to and really loving Jesus and really living for Jesus has to follow as evidence, not earning, but evidence of covenant faithfulness. We really have believed in the new covenant. We really trust Christ. We really love him. We can't get over the fact that he saved us because we're now a daughter or a son of his. Covenant faithfulness must, or covenant faithfulness must always follow the covenant blessing. And if we don't have that, we're living in a delusion that thinks we're really followers of Jesus. That's what's going on to them. Specifically what Israel had done is three things. They didn't care for the poor. The covenant faithfulness didn't follow is they didn't care for the poor. And they were absolutely obligated to. They were quite wealthy and they didn't care for the poor around them. The second thing is they wrongly trusted in false gods. They thought the false gods provided for them when the false gods didn't. We also think that we provide for ourselves from our hard work and our ingenuity. Everything you have is because I've given it to you. No, I earned it. Where did you get arms? Where did you get a brain? Where did you get any ability to do anything? Everything you have, God provided. And the third thing they did is they wrongly trusted in themselves for security. This is more of a theocracy. They thought that we can protect ourselves. We can fight these battles and win. Uh, we don't need God in the end that God is the one that's going to keep them secure. We certainly can apply that to our democracy in America. Um, if we think that the only way we're going to stay secure is by our army instead of the Lord, um, we're under a delusion as well. But that, those were the primary ways that Israel were rebelling. They weren't caring for the poor. They weren't trusting God and giving God the praise for what, what it provided. And they weren't trusting God for security. They were thinking they had to do it themselves. So that's what's going on here. Absolutely applicable for us. So what happens then? We see um, that Jeremiah tells Pashur that he's the one that prophesied falsely. And because Jeremiah was obedient to the word of the Lord, obedient to carry out the word of the Lord, he experienced suffering. So here's the first thing I want you to see. There's four truths. You can go ahead and put up the first slide. The four truths regarding or four truths to remember when we experience suffering. What we learn from that first section, verses 1 through 6, um, is this. Go ahead and put up number 1. Wrongful suffering will likely come our way as we work for the Lord. That's what happened to Jeremiah. He was obediently, faithfully working for the Lord, and when he did, wrongful suffering happened to him. Now, I don't mean wrongful as in uh, it happened to him because he was a sinner, and he, he earned it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying wrongful as in when we see this, you would think that's not supposed to happen. Whenever you're working for the Lord, those kinds of sufferings aren't supposed to happen to you. And it's going to happen for you. As you are a believer in Jesus, living out a life for Christ. And I would say, it used to not be this way in America, but it is more. More and more, we are going to experience wrongful suffering. Suffering that we would think wouldn't happen 
to a Christian who's being faithful. It doesn't mean you're not being faithful. It doesn't mean the Lord isn't good. It means you live in a Genesis 3 broken world, and by being obedient to living that out, living out your faith, you're going to experience suffering sometimes. That's what happens here. And when it did, it sent Jeremiah into a dark night. It sent him into a dark night to where he thinks, if I'm going to follow God, I can't win. (laughs) I just can't win. Later on, he'll he'll say, if I'm going to follow God, I can't lose. So Jeremiah is is quite an emotional being as he fluctuates around. It doesn't mean he's schizophrenic or anything. It just means he's a real guy. And this is what he really thinks. So we'll we'll see that in a second. But verses 1 through 6, the first thing that we can see is this. Suffering is likely going to happen as we work for the Lord. As we work for the Lord. Now, Jeremiah's prayer in verses 7 7 through 18 is also instructive. We're going to see some other things to remember, some other truths to remember but in suffering. But I want you to look at the first two words in verse 7. First two words. O Lord. This is the right response. So we're, we're zooming back to while he's in the stocks. This is how Jeremiah feels, 7 through 18. And it is a whirlwind of emotion. Some very raw, like, can you say that to God kind of stuff? And then even some, like, high praises in verse 13. Praise him. Sing praise to him. So he's very emotional. But the big picture thing I want you to see is, verse 7, first two words. Oh, Lord. So before we look at the content of the prayer, I want you to realize that this is in the larger context of a prayer. It means this, Jeremiah in this horrific time still believes in God. Jeremiah in this time believes that in suffering he should talk to God. In the major time of difficulty, he doesn't believe don't talk to God, he's mad. He believes talk to God, tell him exactly how you feel. And the third thing is he knows when he talks to God that God's going to hear him. So the second thing is this, it's quite instructive, oh Lord, those first two words. Wrongful suffering is going to happen, and when it does, number two, put it up. All doubt and suffering in our lives must be taken to God in prayer. That's what the content of this prayer, oh Lord, teaches us. When suffering comes your way, it doesn't mean this is the time to not talk to God. It means this is absolutely the time to talk to God. And he can handle what you have to say. I don't know that I have ever talked to God like Jeremiah does. But I still know that Jeremiah is called one of God's children. So you can say what you're going to say. Now, I would say this. In that dark night of the soul, the things that you say don't need to be the way that you always talk to God. This is zooming in on one hard, hard night for, for Jeremiah. But what's true is, he doesn't say, forget you, God. I'm not talking to you. He knows I'm supposed to talk. I'm supposed to pray. In the midst of suffering... And doubt, our lives should say, I'm going to take this to God in prayer. This suffering that he's experiencing, listen to these words. It was on the video. Listen to these words that Jeremiah pens later on in Lamentations regarding suffering. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he, he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict his heart, or grieve the children of men. So 
in his big picture of Lamentations, he still knows troublesome times may come, but he has compassion still. He abounds in steadfast love. So he knows, even in that moment he's having a dark night of soul, the overall belief system, he knows who God truly is and that he has compassion. So here's what Jeremiah says. O Lord, so we know it's in the context of a prayer, you have deceived. Pata is the Hebrew word. You have deceived me. This is tricked, duped, or seduced me. I was pata. I was deceived. This is what he believes, how he was deceived. In Jeremiah's mind, his prophecy in chapter 9 that he had delivered had not come true. It had not come true. They had not had any kind of um, disaster come upon them, except what he thought is actually it came to me. So he thought that God gave him a word of prophecy that wasn't true, and he thought God had deceived him, and he thought everybody had betrayed him. Ultimately, if you read the rest of Jeremiah, God didn't betray him. God did fulfill this prophecy, and God is not a deceiver. Um, so, but in this moment, the only thing that Jeremiah could see in that dark night of the soul is doubts and sufferings, and he took him to the Lord in prayer. But the truth was, that's not the case. And God in his goodness puts this untrue thing about himself, about God, in the scriptures for us to say, that's it's pretty amazing that Jeremiah says that. He calls God a deceiver. That's a pretty strong word against the Lord. So what we can see is this, that God is strong. God can take what we need to say. And he says even longer, I've become a laughingstock all the day. So everybody in Israel thinks I'm just a big, huge joke. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. That's your word. That's what you told me. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision. They don't believe it. And they say, you're a joke, Jeremiah. You're, you're full of reproach and derision all day long. You have no idea what you're talking about. Here's the essence of what's going on. They blamed the messenger because they didn't like the message. So they were disobedient. The problem was not the messenger. The problem was the message, and they didn't want to hear it. This is the same thing for us. It says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we the, are the, when we go deliver the message, they might not like the messenger. Um, for those that are being saved, they like it with the aroma of Christ. But the same, same message that we give to them, we can say it to other people, with the aroma of death to them. Is what it says in 2 Corinthians 15 and 16. And the problem isn't with the messenger, it's with the message. Um, and that's what's happening here. And so Jeremiah says, well, since that's the case, since they don't like the word of the Lord, I'm a joke. Everyone mocks me. I'm feeling reproach and derision. I have a solution to this problem. I have a solution. He says it right there in the first part of, of verse 9. Here's my solution. I will say, I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name. My solution is hang up my sandals and go start a landscaping business and never talk to anybody again. That's my job. That's what I'm going to do from now. Not talk about Jesus, not talk about the Lord anymore. I'm hanging it up. Um, but there's a problem. You look at the rest of verse 9, there's a huge problem to that solution of hanging up his sandals and not talking about Jesus anymore. The reason is, I will not mention him, but here it is. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with holding it in, for I cannot. <laughs> so I can say I want to hang it up and never talk. But the only problem is, is there's such a fire in my bones because I'm a prophet to speak the word. It just comes out anyway. I can't not speak. 
There's an interesting little uh, play on words that the writer here uses. You can see in verse 7 when he says, Oh Lord, you deceived me, I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you have prevailed. That Hebrew word prevailed is, is used quite often here. So the word prevailed, you have prevailed. It says it again in verse 9 here. It says, There's within my heart a burning fire shut up in bones. I am weary from withholding, and I cannot keep it down. I cannot let, not let it prevail. It has to prevail. And then it says again, for I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we cannot, then we can overcome. Then maybe we can prevail him. Uh, and then you can keep reading. It says in verse, end of verse 11, they will not overcome. They will not prevail over, over me. So prevail is being over and over. And basically it's just saying, friends, the Israel is not going to prevail. Jeremiah is not going to prevail. God's going to prevail. That's who prevails. Um, so there's a repeating little prevailing, letting us see that it's actually God who's going to prevail. But Jeremiah in verse 9 says, I'm going to announce my resignation and then say I can't resign. That's what sounds good to me. I'm going to quit and then say I can't quit. Because here's the truth. A prophet who has to speak, he's got to speak. So a prophet's got to do what a prophet's got to do. Like, I can't not preach. There's a fire burning in my soul and it has to come out and say it. So I can say I don't want to speak, but that's impossible for a prophet. So I'm going to. I'm going to speak. And an authentic proclaimer, an authentic prophet, or an authentic preacher, if you will, and and I say proclaimer because that's what you are just like I am, our message will disturb sometimes, but it will also comfort. And that's, that's what's going on with Jeremiah. He has to live by his calling. He can't hang up his sandals. He has to live by his calling and preach no matter what the circumstance is in. The Lord has promised that suffering might come, but he's also promised that he's going to save him. It says it in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 19. It says, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. So in this particular moment of the dark night of the soul, Jeremiah has to remember Okay, he said this is going to happen, but ultimately he's going to deliver. Ultimately he's going to deliver. So I'm going to not hang up my sandals. Instead, I'm going to preach. And he says in verse 10, I hear him whispering, terror on every side. By the way, that's what he called Pasher. That's what I said is Pasher's name. They're saying it's my name. They're saying I'm terror on every side. I thought that was Pasher. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. Basically, he's explaining just how terrible it is for him right now. Everybody's against him. So he's thinking, with God, you can't win. Verses 7 through 10. With God, you can't win. But then, verse 11 through 13 is like this major mood shift. And he's like, with God, you can't lose. (laughs) It's awesome with God. And so it's suddenly interrupted complaint into this really a mini worship service that he goes into. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. And, and we should remember, massive mood swings here by Jeremiah are not showing that he's just a fickle guy. Instead, they're there to illustrate to us actually robust faith because robust faith can be real with God. This is how I feel right now. It doesn't mean it's the dominant thoughts of your life. Your overall feeling is trust. But here... He goes from, everybody's against me and I can't win with you. Woom! With the Lord, I'll never lose. Look at verse 11 and 12 and 13. It's his little mini worship service. It's short but quite complete with things. But the Lord is with me. 
as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not prevail over coming. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. Just take them out, God. That would be awesome. I want to watch on the side. For to you I have committed my cause. And look at this. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who is this guy who busts out in worship now? And then he says, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. So here in verses 11, 13, in the midst of suffering, while he's in the stocks, he has this mood shift over to worship. So what does that teach us then about for us in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain? Here's the third thing I want you to see. First, it's going to happen. Second, we have to go to the Lord in prayer. And on an ongoing basis as we're going through suffering, suffering, we must train our hearts to praise God in the midst of suffering. We must train our hearts to praise God in the midst of suffering. And you say, FUD, that's way easier said than done. The last thing I feel like doing is giving God glory and praising him in the midst of suffering. I, I, I hear you. I agree. Very tough. And the dark night of the soul likely, or when you're experiencing some extremely terrible circumstances in your life, I realize the last thing you want to do is praise God. But the instructive word of Jeremiah is for us to learn, to train ourselves. It's difficult, but train ourselves to praise God in those moments. This is what believers in Christ do. Let's look a little, there's, there's three kind of little mini things that he does in this worship service um, that Jeremiah does that are, that are good for us. Um, first that he does is he confesses absolute faith in God. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. This is confessing that he has absolute faith in the Lord. So we can do that. We, we don't call him likely our dread warrior, but you will still can, can have some level of confession. Okay, God, I trust you here. I know it's hard, but I trust you. That's the first thing he does. But all after that, he also asks for deliverance. You can ask for deliverance. God, deliver me from this thing. He says it this way. Let me see your vengeance upon them. <laughs> so his form of deliverance is just kill them, God. Take them out. That's fine with me. I want to have a front row seat. But you don't have to pray it that way. But you can still pray for deliverance. Lord, this, this period of suffering that I'm having, take it away. I feel like it's too much to bear. Would you take it away? But there's also a third thing. First thing, he confesses faith. He renews that confession of faith. Yes, I have faith. And if you could, God, please take this suffering. And the last thing he does, he just praises God. Sing to the Lord. Praise the Lord. Interestingly enough, sing to the Lord and praise the Lord are said in the plural. Hey, everybody. Everybody here, sing to the Lord and praise the Lord. And then he shifts to singular. Everybody needs to sing and praise because God has delivered the life, singular, of the needy one. The, the word one should be after needy and like a little parenthetical one. Everybody sing praises to God because he's delivered me. Everybody get up and sing about that. So he has this little miniature worship service, which is the same thing. We can do these same things. As we train our hearts to praise God in the midst of suffering, we can renew our confession. I don't tr understand God, but I trust you. If it's your will, Lord, please take this away. And I'm going to sing your praises anyway. I'm going to sing to the Lord and praise the Lord. Please help me. Jeremiah knew that the Lord was with him, even though he felt like God was far away. 
He knew that the Lord was with him. And for us here, Jeremiah says, my enemies can't win. I can't win. Only God can win. And Jeremiah for us demonstrates how to praise God in the dark night of the soul. He shows us how to do it. As a matter of fact, he shows us the best thing we can do when we're discouraged, the best thing we can do when we're suffering, the best thing we can do when times are tough is to go to the Lord, not only in prayer, but in worship. That's the best thing we can do. Now, it would be awesome if this was the end of the chapter. (laughs) Because just like Jeremiah was sad and shifts over, the preacher would love this. Everything's happy. Look what he does. Whoo, let's stop. He has a mood shift back over to like, what are you doing, Jeremiah? Why would you say this? And he ends it that way. He ends it negatively. And so it would be awesome. It would be great if the lament ended in verse 13. But there is a massive shift, a huge shock. It's such a shift that commentators think it doesn't even belong. They think that it, should, it just came later. It shouldn't even be there. Calvin is mystified as what's going on in 14 through 18. He, he writes, a huge change which is absolutely unworthy of a holy man to pass suddenly from thanksgiving to God to insults, as though he has even forgotten himself. Like, what is going on here? Calvin is mystified as what's going on with Jeremiah. Philip Ryken says this. Jeremiah's, in verses 14 through 18, he goes to curses which follow praises because for him, in that specific time, the dark night of his soul, that's the way it was going. That's why why it's like this. And God is allowing for us to have a window into a real, feeling, raw, emotional window. Sometimes it doesn't always end in verses 11 through 13 on our dark night or our tough time versus suffering. It doesn't happen. We want it to end on verse 13, but sometimes our, our, our suffering ends with, I just feel terrible still. And that's how it ends for him. Now, As we look at 14 through 18, um, before we wonder too much about what's wrong with him, as it says in verse 14, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Curse the man that brought the good news to my father that a son is born to you, making him glad that day. Let the man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. That's Sodom and Gomorrah, by the way. That's pretty extreme cities he overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and alarm at noon because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out of the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? There it is. Jeremiah, you're killing me. (laughs) Why would you end your prayer that way? Because this is what, this is how it ended for him that night. And for some of us, it doesn't always end positive on that tough night of suffering. It ends negative. It ends tough. But before we think too much about Jeremiah, let me just ask this. Are we not the same way? Are we not sometimes the exact same way? Some days we praise God and then we reject him in the way we live. Some days we know our sins are forgiven, but we still continue to sin. Some days we rejoice in God's plan that he's laid out before us and then we continually resist it the rest of that day. I don't want it. No, thank you for giving it to me. And I don't like it. We're just as fickle, I think, as Jeremiah. It doesn't mean that we're not believers. It doesn't mean that he's not a believer. It doesn't mean that Jeremiah doesn't love God. It doesn't mean that you don't love God. Remember what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3. 
The Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict in his heart or grieve the children of men. These are bitter laments of, of Jeremiah. These are absolutely the most bitter of Jeremiah in the entire book of laments, which is why I picked it, because it's so hard of a text. And likely, these might even be the most bitter of laments in the Bible that anybody writes. Derek Kidner wrote, these words in 14 through 18 are meant to actually bowl us over. These raw words in Scripture remain in Scripture, lest we forget the sharpness of their words and the age-long struggle that Jeremiah feels and all of us might feel in our lives and show us the frailty of humans, but also, in the end, how they might be the finest overcomers. The truth is, when the dark night of the soul is lifted, and we are truly those that are Christ follows. We are still, this guy was the finest of overcomers. We know that's the case, and we can be as well. Jeremiah here, to his credit, doesn't curse his parents, and he doesn't curse God, because those things are actually forbidden in Leviticus 29, so he just curses his birthday. (laughs) Just going to curse my birthday. (laughs) And you're saying, okay, Fudd, um, what in the world do you have to say that's positive? Is there any instruction that you can offer me from 14 through 18? Because I don't see anything. He curses the womb and curses his birthday. How is there anything that you can say that's remotely instructive here? Curse, he said, I should have died in my mother's womb. It's, it's no accident, I don't think, that the word womb is mentioned in verses 17 that I could have died because he did not kill me in the womb, so my mother would have been my grave. For Jeremiah, he traces all his troubles back right to the womb. But what does God say? As Jeremiah traces his troubles back to the womb, God can trace his promises back before Jeremiah was even in the womb. I set you aside, set you aside from the beginning, Jeremiah 1.5. You think everything happened in the womb? Actually, If you look big picture with me, before you even in your mother's womb, I had already set you aside to be a prophet. So in this midst of trouble, and you think everything happens here, what you need to do as you're having these life existence issues is remember the calling that existed before time even began. That's what instructive from verses 14 through 18. So number four, when suffering comes, here's the last thing, the last truth to remember. When suffering comes... And brings big picture life questions like, why do I exist? What's the point right now? This is such a terrible thing. When I'm asking, why am I alive right now? And we can point back to our womb as the problem. God says, remember your calling before the womb. For Jeremiah, it was his calling to ministry. For us, it's your calling to be a believer in Christ. For Jeremiah, when Jeremiah traces troubles back to the womb, God could trace his promises, not troubles, back before the womb. For you, you can trace your troubles back to the womb, but God can trace his promises back to before you in the womb. For those that are in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5 says he chose us to be in him before the creation of the world. So as you're experiencing suffering and asking these big picture questions, remember your calling to Christ. Here's your calling. Romans 8, 29 and 30. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, here it is, he also called. Remember your calling. Because those whom he called, he also justified, declared innocent. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. One day you'll be in heaven with him forever, made to be just like Christ. So as Jeremiah is instructed in this particular moment here he was asking these questions about his existence but was not mentally ready to answer them but God was mentally ready to answer them and said remember when I called you into ministry and these big picture existent questions remember your calling and for you in the midst of suffering and those big picture questions and those suffering that you have what's the point why am I even here he's saying remember your calling which happened before creation even began you're calling unto Christ So here's how I want to conclude. You'll never guess. Jesus. (laughs) In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 2, um, the English uh, Standard Version Study Bible says there's a connection to Christ. Um, This is the only one it listed, but then as I started thinking and looking, man, there's way more connections to Christ in this than just this one. It says, as opposition to Jeremiah, the prophet prefigures opposition to Christ, the final prophet. So as that prophet received opposition, that prefigures Christ who receives the prophet who receives lots of opposition. And as you look at it, you see even more prefigurings of Christ. As Jeremiah was wrongfully beating, wrongfully beaten for doing the Lord's work, Christ was also wrongfully beaten and crucified for doing the Lord's work. And he eventually went to, our cro- to the cross for our sin. As Jeremiah received sinister opposition because he declared the word of the Lord to the religious establishment at the time, Pashur, in the same way Jesus, who didn't have just the word of the Lord, but was the word of the Lord, was also opposed by the religious establishment, the Pharisees at the time. And they all didn't just make him suffer, but they eventually killed him on the cross. The cross that points us to our calling. Christ has died for us, he has called us, he has justified, and one day he will glorify us. So Jeremiah's sufferings actually point us to Jesus and his sufferings, where we are secured now, forever, from eternity past. All those that are sons and daughters in Christ are eternally secure as his. So in these sufferings that you might experience, where certainly you need to remember those things that I've told you, the four truths that we need to remember is suffering's going to come, and when it comes, absolutely don't ever neglect to immediately take it to the Lord in prayer. He wants you to bring it to Him. And when these things happen, train your hearts to worship. And as you train your heart to worship, and as you are going through it, and you think, why am I even here? Why is this going on? He's saying, remember your calling. The sufferings of Jeremiah point you to the sufferings of Christ, and the sufferings of Christ point you to the fact that you have been called a son or a daughter and that he's with you. This is absolute great reason to have verse 13. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered, notice this, the life of the needy one. Who's the needy one? I'm poor in spirit and needy and I need a savior. He's delivered us from the hand of the evildoers, delivered us from Satan, sin, and death and delivered us into his son. This is great reason to worship. And hey, everybody, 
Sing and praise the Lord for what he's done for me. And then everybody should stand up and say that to everybody. Hey, everybody, sing and praise for what he's done to me. He's also delivered me. He's also saved me. So let's do that. If, if as we've talked about suffering, you've thought to yourself, man, this is heavy, and this is exactly what I'm going through, and I need, I need some time to think through. I would say, think through those four things. Pray, and let the Holy Spirit comfort you through this. But for those of you that would just want to stand and worship, sing with us and give God the glory for what he's done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love and mercy you've given to us in Christ. I'm so thankful for stories like this that show us that people can be real. They don't have to hide. That you are a God that loves us and handles anything we have to say. Because you're a father. You're not a master. You're our father. And so I pray, God, that as we go into a time of worship, that we would give you the glory because Jeremiah's sufferings point us to the ultimate sufferings of Christ. And now, God, we can be secure and safe forever. By his stripes, we are healed.